Good evening. Welcome to session 34 of Systematic Theology. We're working our way through the portion of Systematic Theology called Soteriology. Soteriology is just a word for the doctrine of salvation. We can divide the doctrine of salvation between Christ's accomplishment of redemption for us and the application of redemption when a person is saved by Christ. We're working through the accomplishment of redemption. And we began with answering the question, why do we need salvation? Scripture describes the way that we were born as being in sin and weak, sick, and indeed dead in our sin. We have nothing to bring to God in our salvation, and a dead person cannot bring anything anyway. If a person is to be saved from this condition, God must do the saving by his own mighty work. We also covered what we were saved from, which is God's wrath against sin. We moved on to the question, why can't we just save ourselves? Other religions hold to synergism, which is the error that salvation is a kind of joint project between God and the sinner. Instead, the work of salvation is a work of monergism, which is God working alone. In part two of Soteriology, we defined atonement and what separates true atonement from the false atonement of other religions. The motive of God in designing the atonement, or what the theologian Burkhoff called the moving cause of the atonement, was the love of God. God was motivated by his love to the people that he elected from eternity to design the atonement. We saw that the atonement must be designed by God rather than ourselves, and it must be substitutionary sacrifice where another takes our place in judgment and wrath against our sins, and the substitute must be without flaw. We looked at the means of atonement that was temporarily given to Old Testament believers, the shadow of what was to come, and saw that the atonement was imperfect by design. God never meant for the blood of animals to be a perfect instrument or means of atonement. The blood of animals was meant to look forward to the blood of Christ, the perfect instrument of atonement. Those who lived under the Old Testament, if they were chosen by God, were saved, and saved in the same way we are, by Christ. They may not have had the full knowledge and understanding given to us under the New Testament, but their salvation was not a different means of salvation. Then we looked at two false theories of atonement. The moral influence theory of the atonement holds that sacrifice was not necessary to remove sins. Instead, Christ's death was just an example of devotion to truth and duty, so that we'll look at that example and be moved to turn over a new leaf on our own. The other false theory of the atonement we looked at was the moral government theory. That false theory holds that the atonement didn't pay our sin debt. Instead, the cross only demonstrated the serious nature of sin, and this sort of allowed God to kind of lower the bar or relax his moral law when it came to us. Finally, we looked at whether the atonement had to be accomplished the way God designed it. With the incarnation of Christ, his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, I hold to the doctrine of what we called consequent absolute necessity. Consequent absolute necessity. That phrase is kind of complicated, but it just means that while God was not obligated to save anyone, once he did, in his grace, decree 
to save his people. There was no other path to fulfilling that decree other than the atonement he designed. Before we move on, I want to start with a quote from an early 20th century theologian, J. Gresham Machen. His quote ties right in with the subject of the atonement of Christ. Here's what he said. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. Christianity is based on historical events. When the Nicene Creed states that Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate, the Creed is saying that the cross is not mythological or legendary. Christ really died on that cross, and that is history just as much as Pontius Pilate is real history. But then, Scripture reveals and interprets that history for us that when Christ died on the cross, he died for our sins. That is doctrine. Those two things, the real history of what really happened and the doctrine that tells us what it means, are coupled together in Christianity. If you deny the history and say that the cross was a legend, or that Jesus was not really resurrected in history, Christianity crumbles. If you take the history of the cross as real, but assign an unscriptural meaning to it, Christianity also crumbles. The review is done, so now it's time to move on. Since we left off with what the atonement is and the necessity of the atonement, <clears throat> let's stick with that path and look at a very important question. Who did Christ die for? Who did Christ die for? As Christ did his perfect work of living a perfect life, fulfilling the law, going to the cross, having sins judged in himself as a substitute, dying as a substitute to fulfill God's perfect justice, who did he do this for? Did Christ die for everyone or a subset of people, a portion of the human race? We'll look at four views on who Christ died for. Three of those views are incorrect, some more incorrect than others. One of those views is correct, which is the Reformed view on the intent of the atonement. You might have noticed <clears throat> that the handouts tonight are two-sided. On the other side, I've included a table that summarizes four views, and we'll walk through those views on how the atonement is intended. And as you look at the table in your notes, the first column on the left is the theory of that particular viewpoint. The theory might be that in the atonement, Christ actually saved everyone, or that Christ's atonement makes everyone's salvation in some way possible, or that the atonement actually accomplishes redemption. The second column shows, for that viewpoint, the extent of the atonement. In other words, was the atonement designed for everyone who ever lived? Does the atonement have real or potential benefit for everyone, or is the design of the or is the design and intent of the atonement only for a subset of people? The next column is the actual effect of the atonement. The atonement may have real or potential effect for a group, but it may be applied only to certain people. Finally, the last column is the name for that position. Now, at first glance, the table looks kind of imposing, but we'll go through it line by line and unravel it. And for listeners on sermon audio, I do have the uh, the notes for this thing uh, for this um, uh, sermon posted um, on the sermon audio site, so that uh, you can see the table as we go through it. The first view 
is that the atonement was designed and intended by God to actually save everyone. And everyone will eventually be saved by that atonement. So the extent of the atonement, the way it was designed, was to include everyone. And on top of that, the effect of the atonement is that it will eventually save everyone. This view is called universal salvation or universalism. Those who hold to this view point to passages that mention the whole world. And there are several of those passages, but I'm just going to mention one of them. 1 John 2.2 He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. One of the theologians of the third century, Origen, actually taught a theory of universal restoration, that all spirits would one day be restored and reunited in heavenly bliss, including Satan himself. The church condemned this extreme view in the 6th century. But universalism never went away, and unfortunately it's becoming more popular recently. It appeals to people who want the church to seem less judgmental or who want to feel good about what the end of all things will look like. Universalism avoids uncomfortable conversations about hell, which is an uncomfortable doctrine. There are Christians who kind of hold universalism as maybe a private opinion, even though they recognize it's not a doctrine that their church would hold to. We need to realize that the heresy of universalism is still out there in order to keep ourselves from deception. A modern example of the promotion of this false doctrine is the popular book Love Wins by megachurch pastor Rob Bell. The book teaches a kind of universalism where we create our own hell when we don't accept God's love, but God himself does not eternally punish. The book holds that everyone will eventually turn to God either in this life or the next, so therefore love wins. Of course, Universalists have to somehow deal with Jesus' explicit warnings about eternal punishment. Here's just one of these dire warnings in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I classify universalism as an outright heresy. It denies dire warnings in scripture about hell, and it denies what the church has affirmed from its earliest days. Here's a quote from the Athanasian Creed, which was composed in the early 5th century. Speaking of the return of Christ, it says, At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies, and shall give account for their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. The Westminster Confession of Faith boldly teaches the doctrine of eternal punishment. Here is a quote from the section on the Last Judgment. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But... The wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction 
from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The next theory on the second line of the table doesn't go as far as universalism does. Instead, the theory is that the atonement only makes salvation possible for everyone. The intent and design of the atonement is for everyone, without exception. But this atonement doesn't actually accomplish salvation by itself, or everyone would have to be saved, and that's universalism. The atonement just makes everyone savable. This is how one theologian who held to this view, Louis Sperry Chafer, expressed it. Christ's death does not save either actually or potentially. Rather, it makes all men savable. This theory is part of the system of doctrine called Arminianism. The system is named after Jacob Arminius, who lived in the 16th century. The followers of Arminius developed five points of doctrine, which taught that Christ died to only make salvation possible for everyone. God's electing of people to be saved is based on God sort of looking down the corridor of time to see who will come to faith. People cannot come to faith on their own, but God grants a kind of grace to everyone that makes them capable of faith, but they still have to take the last step of faith on their own. Therefore, people can resist this grace that God gives to everyone. Not only that, but people can be truly saved, but then walk away from God and lose salvation. Arminianism is a very popular and widespread theory in Christianity in this country. It's a less serious error than universalism. It's not a heresy that will place people outside Christianity for believing it, but it is still an error despite its popularity. Arminianism holds that sinners are not actually dead in sin. This is the first and largest problem with Arminianism. It thinks too little of the real and helpless situation of sinners. We've covered before that sinners are dead in sin. No matter how much help you provide a dead person, that dead person cannot do anything and cannot make a decision for Christ. Arminians want to believe that sinners are born with some ability to choose Christ, and all they need is some help in the form of grace given to everyone that brings them to the edge of a decision. Then, the dead sinner has some moral power to use their free will to have saving faith. There's a second problem with Arminian theology, and this comes from looking at it through the lens of systematic theology, using a principle we've already studied. That principle is that Christ's atonement, his sacrifice, was substitutionary. When Christ went to the cross and took the punishment that was actually due to sinners, he acted as a substitute for sinners. Now, if the extent of the atonement is for everyone who ever lived, that means he really substituted for everyone. But wait a minute. Many people never accept Christ and they will be judged for their sins and bear eternal punishment. Isn't that a violation of justice? It's what we call in our system of justice, double jeopardy. It's being judged twice for the same thing, which is not allowed. If Christ's atonement is a substitution, if the cross means he is judged in place of us, and the extent of that work of substitution is extended to everyone, 
then the unrepentant who never come to Christ also have the benefit of that substitution, which means they can't be judged at the final judgment. It would be double jeopardy, double judgment. What is interesting is that there are some Arminians who actually see this problem with their theology for what it is, and then they try to fix it by denying substitutionary atonement. Instead of renouncing their error of Arminianism, they reject the essential doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Here's a third problem with the Arminian theory of the atonement. Arminianism tries to grapple with the difficulty of all people being spiritually dead and unable to choose salvation by an additional theory. They layer another theory on top of this one. That theory is that God brings everyone to the brink of spiritual life through an act of grace. Everyone receives this act of God's grace, no matter who they are. It's universal. That act of grace overcomes our spiritually dead state because of sin, but just enough to bring us to the brink of salvation. Then, that last final step is up to each of us. This theory is called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. In this theory, everyone gets this prevenient grace. And for Arminians, they have to believe that everyone gets this grace. Since they hold that salvation is triggered at the end by an act of our own free will, our free will has to be brought from the effect of spiritual death to the brink of salvation so that our free will can take the last step of faith, which is unaided by God. It's like everyone gets dragged to the one-yard line of the football field by something outside of their own power. But then they are left at the one-yard line to see if any of them will take that last step over the line to a touchdown as an act of their own will and under their own power. There's a problem with prevenient grace that is apparent when we look at it using systematic theology. In our previous studies, we've looked at common grace versus saving grace. Common grace is called common because everyone benefits by it to some extent. The sun rises on the saved and the unsaved. The rain falls on the saved and the unsaved. Everyone benefits from the continuation of the world. For the time being, everyone benefits from God's patience, that at least for today the final judgment is not yet. That is common grace. But common grace is not saving grace. Because of their view of prevenient grace, it confuses common grace with saving grace. Because prevenient grace is supposedly given to everyone, it would count as an aspect of common grace, but it also contributes to salvation. It drags everyone to the one-yard line. We do believe that the benefit of hearing the gospel is widely given. The church is to preach the gospel to every person in every nation. There is the potential of benefit to everyone who hears the gospel, but prevenient grace goes beyond that. Prevenient grace is not just the spread of the gospel, which is external, but it's internal in each person. It supposedly gives everyone not only the same opportunity to accept the gospel, but the same ability to accept the gospel using their own free will. So, here's the problem. Prevenient grace confuses common grace and saving grace. Saving grace becomes to some extent common. 
Prevenient grace is distributed the same way that common grace is, but it also contributes to salvation, so it's also saving grace. It's saving grace that a person can resist, but it's still saving grace. We learned before in previous sessions that common grace does not equal saving grace, but prevenient grace confuses common grace and saving grace. Here's a fourth problem with the Arminian theory of the atonement. It means that saving faith is not entirely a gift of God. If prevenient grace brings us to the threshold of saving faith, but not quite all the way, and the last step is completely up to our unaffected free will, then what separates me who accepted Christ from my unsaved neighbor who has not accepted Christ? We both received a common prevenient grace. We both heard the same gospel. We were both faced with a final decision we had to make completely on our own, unaided by God with only our natural free will. If I took that last step of saving faith and my unsaved neighbor didn't, then that must mean I'm better than my neighbor in some way. I'm either a little smarter than my neighbor or more noble than my neighbor or I have more natural spirituality than my neighbor. But here's what Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 say about that. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. None of our own works bring us to salvation. It is completely of God's grace. It is a completely undeserved gift. It is not our own doing. And the way I interpret this verse is that even the faith that brings us to salvation is a gift of God. This is shown by verse 10, where it says that saved people are God's workmanship. The work of atonement, of making a way of salvation, then applying that salvation to the sheep given to the Son, and even the act of saving faith is part of God's workmanship, part of God's master work, God's project. Verse 9 speaks directly to the weak point of Arminianism. It says that because salvation is not our doing, even saving faith is not our doing because we are God's workmanship because it is by grace no one may boast. Arminianism gives us room to boast. Maybe it's just a little bit of boasting. But we who are saved could still boast that when it came to the final step of using our unaided free will to accept Christ, we were a little smarter than our neighbor or a little more noble than our neighbor, or a little more spiritual than our neighbor. This would mean that there's at least some degree of merit in the saved. But verse 9 says that no one can boast, not even a little bit. One of the great documents of the Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism, tells us where faith comes from. It asks the question, Since then, we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only. Whence does this faith proceed? It gives the answer, from the Holy Ghost, who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirms it by the use 
of the sacraments. So, saving faith is not something where God brings everyone in the world to the one-yard line by prevenient grace. Then you gain saving faith to take that last step on your own, using your own unassisted free will. This would mean that you're not completely God's workmanship. You had a hand in the workmanship. It would mean that boasting is not taken away, since you could boast at least a little. Even our faith is given by the Holy Spirit, who works in the preached word to grant faith itself as a gift. Augustine commented on this passage with these words, and how even our faith does not come from our own merit. He wrote this, And lest men should arrogate to themselves the merit of their own faith, at least, not understanding that this too is the gift of God, this same apostle who says in another place that he had obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful, here also adds, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the Arminian would say, what about the passages that, for tonight, I'm going to call them the, the all passages. The all passages. There are passages that at first glance would seem to be saying that the extent of the atonement is to the whole world, meaning everyone who has ever lived. As an example, I'll take just one of those passages. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here, John writes that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And that means that Christ's work at the cross was the necessary work to turn away the wrath of God from us that is due to us because of sin. That's what propitiation means, to turn away the wrath of God from us that is due to us because of sin. Then, John goes on to show the extent of this atonement. The atonement, in some sense, extends to the whole world. Arminians would say that passages like this show that the intent of the atonement is indeed for everyone, that the atonement makes everyone savable, and it's up to each person to use unassisted free will to gain salvation. But what does the whole world mean here? If everyone is meant, then this propitiation that it speaks of, this turning away of God's wrath, must apply to everyone. The passage doesn't say that Christ is potentially the propitiation for the whole world. It says that he is the propitiation for the whole world. Now we're starting to flirt with universalism. Unless you believe that everyone is saved, then Christ did not turn away the wrath of God for everyone's sins. What John is writing is that Christ's atonement extends to his sheep, not only of the Jews, not only of the nation of Israel, but Christ's sheep of all nations. This whole world described by John is what is described again in Revelation chapter 7. That's where I'll be next. Revelation chapter 7. I'll read verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The all here is a description of the sheep given to Christ as coming from all tribes, peoples, and languages. The whole world doesn't mean everyone without exception, but the fact that salvation is not limited to one nation or one people. And in that passage in 1 John, written by the same John who was inspired by God to write Revelation, his phrase, the whole world, means the same all as in Revelation, where he writes about all tribes, all peoples, all languages. I won't go into all the passages that Arminians use to try to prove their case that the intent of the atonement is for the whole world without exception. But each of them basically must be interpreted the same way. Christ died for all sorts of people in every nation, tribe, and language. But this is not the same as dying for all individuals who ever lived without exception. Moving on from Arminianism, the next theory you see in the table in your notes is called Amaraldianism. Another name for that is Hypothetical Universalism. This theory tries to stake out sort of a middle ground between the Reformed view and Arminianism. In this view, Christ actually bore the sins of everyone without exception. But God knew that no one would accept Christ apart from the gift of faith, so God elected some people to receive the gift of faith. I won't go further into Amaraldianism tonight, but I just wanted to say that there is this attempt out there to have it both ways. This doctrine wants to avoid what they seem to think is a problem, limited atonement, but still keep the doctrine of election that God already chose before the world was those who would actually benefit from the atonement. In my opinion, Amaraldianism just doesn't go far enough to explain the passages that show that Christ died specifically for those the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. Now this brings us to the last entry on the table in your notes, the Reformed view, which I'm teaching as the correct view. In this view, the atonement of Christ does have infinite value. If God had, for the sake of argument, decreed to save everyone, nothing more would be needed at the cross. The power of the atonement is not limited, but the atonement was not designed for everyone. Christ did not bear the sins of everyone. Christ specifically died only for the elect, the sheep that the Father gave to him from eternity. Under this view, Christ's atonement didn't just make salvation possible, but it actually accomplished redemption for Christ's sheep. This view is often called limited atonement, though a more accurate term is particular redemption or definite atonement. Those terms tell us that Christ died for particular people, his sheep, given to him by the Father. The terms tell us that Christ's atonement was definite. It actually accomplished redemption, and it didn't just make redemption possible. The fact is that the design of the atonement is for the elect, for the sheep that the Father gave to the Son. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, tell us that Jesus gave himself specifically and particularly for his sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. If you believe that the atonement of Christ simply makes everyone savable, and then it's up to each individual whether that atonement has any effect for them, then you have to say that everyone is Christ's sheep. After all, Jesus here says he laid down his life for the sheep. But there are obviously those who are not his sheep. Further down in John chapter 10, Jesus tells us several things about his sheep, those he laid down his life for. It says in John 10, starting in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 26 tells us that not everyone is among Jesus' sheep. His sheep are a subset of the world, not the entire world. This subset of the world, Jesus' sheep, hear his voice. Jesus knows them, and they follow Jesus. Jesus gives this subset of the world, his sheep, eternal life, and no one can take them from Jesus. Then Jesus says that it is the Father who has specifically given these sheep to Jesus. That statement bears directly on what we're looking at right now. Was the atonement, the death of Jesus on the cross, designed for everyone and only made salvation possible depending on our whim? If so, the work of the cross didn't actually do anything. It only created potential, the potential for salvation. But Jesus said in verse 29 that the Father has already given Jesus' sheep to him. Let's say for a minute that Jesus' intent at the cross was to potentially save everyone. But the Father's intent was to only give some to Jesus. Then the two would be working at cross purposes. The intent of the Father would be different than the intent of the Son. But we've learned from previous studies on the Trinity that the persons of the Trinity never work at cross-purposes. That is the doctrine of inseparable operations, which we've studied before. The theologian Francis Turretin says this about the fact that the persons of the Trinity did not have differing agendas with salvation. He wrote, Thus, no one was elected by the Father who will not be redeemed by the Son and sanctified by the Spirit. Thus, no one was elected by the Father who will not be redeemed by the Son and sanctified by the Spirit. The persons of the Trinity are in agreement. The doctrine of inseparable operations demands this. The Father elected some, not all, to give to the Son. The Son went to the cross specifically for those sheep. The Spirit will apply salvation specifically to those sheep. 
One of the great passages that shows that Christ died specifically for his people is what we call his great high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'll just read portions of the passage. First, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Christ has the authority and therefore the task to specifically save those who the Father has given him. Next, I'll read verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The Father gave Christ a specific subset of the people of the world, which is not the same as all individuals in the world. And next I'll read verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. When Christ prayed his great high priestly prayer, perhaps surprisingly to some, he didn't pray for the whole world. He stated, I am not praying for the world. Instead, he was praying as a high priest for those who the Father gave to him. As high priest, Christ was going to the cross with the intent of sacrificing for these people, the ones who the Father had already given to him. And in verses 20 and 21, we see that Christ did not mean only the original disciples, but all those who the Father gave to Christ who were yet to be saved by the preaching of the gospel. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. One of the powerful verses of the prayer is verse 19, where Jesus directly states his intent in having lived his sinless life and being obedient even to the death of the cross. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What Jesus was doing as the great high priest had a specific intent. His work was not done with the intent of actually being applied to the whole world. And now it's up to each person what happens. There is no theoretical redemption happening here. Jesus says that it is for their sake, for the sake of the people that the Father already gave him that he is doing these things. The way that the Reformed express this is with an old formula, which goes, the atonement is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. The atonement is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. The work of the cross does have infinite power, but the intention of the cross is for the elect only. 
It's not like the power of the atonement is exactly calibrated to save only the elect, and it's no more powerful than that exact amount. If the Father had elected to save everyone, no more would have had to have been done at the cross than what Jesus did. But the design and the intent of the atonement was for the sheep that the Father gave to the Son. The atonement has infinite value, but Jesus went to the cross specifically for the sheep that the Father gave him. This doctrine is expressed in one of the great Reformation documents, the Westminster Larger Catechism. It asks the question, who are made partakers of redemption through Christ? It then gives the answer, redemption is certainly applied and effectually communicated to all those for whom Christ has purchased it, who are in time by the Holy Ghost enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. Here, the Catechism makes a direct linkage between Christ's purchase of individuals and who that purchase is applied to. Redemption is applied to those for whom Christ purchased it. Christ purchased redemption not for everyone, but for those who were chosen from eternity past to receive redemption. What well, we've just finished looking at, the extent of the atonement, or who Christ died for, figures into what is often called the five points of Calvinism. These five points of doctrine actually come from a gathering of theologians called the Synod of Dort. These five points of doctrine were published in response to five points of doctrine published by Arminians, and they are meant to refute the Arminians. People often remember these five points using the, the acronym TULIP. T-U-L-I-P, TULIP. The T stands for total depravity. If you've been with us for a while, when we studied the doctrine of man in session 22, you may remember that we covered the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that man is as evil as he could possibly be. God's common grace has kept mankind from being as evil as one could possibly be. But people, descendants of Adam, are born with sinfulness that pervades all areas of life, the totality of human existence. We can't come to God on our own. Total depravity is the T of TULIP. The next letter, U, is for unconditional election. We've touched on that a little when we've spoken of the elect of God chosen or elected by God from before the foundation of the world to be saved. And we'll be getting more into this letter U in future studies when we look at the application of redemption. The next letter is L, which stands for limited atonement. That letter L is what we've been looking at tonight. Limited atonement is the doctrine that the intent of Christ's atonement is for the elect. The trouble with the word limited is it says maybe too much. The intent of the atonement is limited to the elect but its power is not limited. I said a while ago that the power of the cross was not calibrated to just barely save the elect, and that's as much power as it has. The power of the atonement is such that it could save 10,000 worlds of people if God had elected that many people. So the power of the cross is not limited, but its intent is limited to the elect. Christ went to the cross specifically for his sheep. 
Christ didn't go to the cross for a theoretical group of people. He died for his sheep. His intent was limited to that. Because the word limited could be taken the wrong way, some people prefer the term particular atonement or particular redemption or definite atonement. But definite atonement kind of ruins that neat acronym of TULIP. Now it would be TUDIP. Nobody would remember TUDIP. In case you're wondering what the other two letters in TULIP stand for, the I stands for irresistible grace and the P stands for perseverance of the saints, but that's for another study. So we'll get to those truths in a later session. One of the effects of accepting the truths of election and limited atonement is that it strikes down our pride. I'm saved, but this is due to the work of God. If the extent of the atonement is to everyone, if Christ died for all without exception, and then it's up to each person to choose to benefit, then I have something to boast about before God. Christ, in the atonement, may have done 99% of what needs to be done, but I still have to do one more percent. Christ accomplished atonement and made the benefit available, and prevenient grace may have dragged me and everyone else to the one-yard line. But it's still up to me to drag myself that one last yard by choosing salvation. The fact that I dragged myself that one last yard under my own power and someone else didn't gives me something to boast about. That has to be explained somehow. I'm either more clever or more noble or more spiritual than the person who is content to lie there at the one-yard line. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a section that contrasts the so-called wisdom of the world that looks down at the cross and calls the gospel foolish. But it is the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of the plan of God shown in the atonement that puts the so-called wisdom of the world to shame. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 31, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. First, let's look at verses 23 and 24. Paul describes the majority, both Jewish and Gentile, as those who in the so-called wisdom of the world reject the atonement. Verse 24 describes those out of the world who are saved. Paul describes these people as called. 
but to those who are called. These called people look at the atonement radically different than the majority who are not called. The called people see Christ in his work as the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's obvious that not everyone is a member of this called group. The majority reject the gospel and see it as foolish. Only the called see the gospel for what it is, true wisdom. The atonement is not limited it's limited not in power, but in its intent. The atonement was intended and accomplished for those that God would call. This particular call can't be a universal call, because here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's plain that most are not in this group who are called in this particular way. Then we get to verse 29, the verse that deflates our pride. If any Christian is tempted to be puffed up with pride because he thinks he called himself, he dragged himself that one last yard under his own power. Verse 29 destroys that pride. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The words human being that we see here in the ESV translation, in the Greek it's just one word, sarx, which means flesh. In fact, the King James translates this as that no flesh should glory in his presence. This literal translation, flesh, rather than human being, emphasizes our weakness. It isn't anything in myself that makes the difference between me and my unsaved neighbor. I am sarks, weak flesh like everyone else. Can you imagine anyone who is weak flesh, standing before God and giving themselves even a little bit of credit for being saved. Can I, weak flesh, sarks, pat myself on the back a little for being a little more wise or noble than my unsaved neighbor? Verse 29 speaks back to me. So that no sarks, no flesh might boast in the presence of God. But now the question comes up about how we should proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ's atonement. If the extent of the atonement is to the elect, those chosen by name before the world was, then why is the church commanded to preach the gospel to all creation? We see this in the great commission given by Christ to the church. Here's how the gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 15, records the great commission. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The Lord in his office as king gives a royal command. That kingly command is to make a royal proclamation to the whole of humanity, the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. Every human being created by God must hear the proclamation. But if the intent of the atonement is only for the elect, What's the point of proclaiming the atonement to all creation? Well, one reason is that we don't know who the elect are. God knows them. But when we preach the gospel before all people, we don't know who among them are the elect. Let's turn next to Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. Here, we'll see the obligation of the church to preach the gospel and to do so widely without trying to pry into the secret decree of God concerning who is the elect and who isn't. I am under obligation both to Greeks 
and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In verse 14, Paul says that he has received marching orders from his king, who is Jesus. He is under obligation, and that obligation extends to all, Greeks and barbarians, which is just another way of saying those who didn't speak Greek. This obligation laid upon Paul was so urgent that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul said that he couldn't pat himself on the back for preaching the gospel. In fact, he was fulfilling an obligation, a necessity. And then he pronounced a prophetic woe upon himself if he didn't carry out this obligation. It is an obligation of the church to preach the gospel widely without trying to guess who is elect. That is only for God to know. The church's task is to preach. We might be reminded of the parable of the four types of soil, where Jesus uses an agricultural word picture. The seeds of the gospel are scattered widely over different types of soil, and God gives the increase only on the soil that he has already prepared. And then we see a resulting harvest. Paul, after he speaks of his sacred obligation, to preach the gospel, says that this is not a message to be ashamed of. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Why should the church preach the gospel widely and without shame? Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Holy Spirit works in the word of the gospel to apply redemption in the elect. The world may insult the gospel as being a weak message, without power and without relevance in the modern age. But the gospel is the opposite of weak. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And the power of the Holy Spirit working in the gospel goes forward wherever it is preached. The king of kings is expanding the territory of his kingdom, and the preached gospel is the battle front. The Holy Spirit working in the gospel separates people from being subjects of Satan and makes them subjects of Christ. Although the phrase limited atonement may not be a fair term, the doctrine it describes is true. Christ died with a particular intention to save the elect, his people. This is what gives the offer of the gospel its real power. In evangelism, we can offer the gospel to unbelievers with the absolute assurance that the atonement's power will save those it was meant to save. The gospel is not proclaimed as a weak message where we hope that someone will listen. We don't offer it with emotional trickery and stunts that people use in the art of persuasion. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We can boldly and plainly bring the gospel to bear, knowing that the Holy Spirit will use it to apply redemption to those that Christ went 
to the cross to save the elect. The doctrine of limited atonement, or definite atonement, does not rob the gospel of power. Instead, it gives us assurance that the gospel will be effective for those the cross was intended to save. To conclude tonight, I want to read my introduction to worship at February's Home Church Fellowship that brings the doctrine of limited atonement or definite atonement into focus for us individually in a way that should bring us comfort. For whom did Christ die? When Christ went to the cross, did he intend to die for everyone without exception? Or did he atone specifically for those that the Father chose to give to Christ as his sheep? The answer should bring great comfort to us. The answer is that while the power of the cross is infinite, the intent of the cross is for Christ's sheep, chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 show this when Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. The Father gave certain people by name to the Son in eternity past. Christ went to the cross and laid down his life for these sheep. The comforting thing is that he laid down his life for you. For you specifically. He didn't lay down his life for a theoretical mass of people who might be saved. Since you are saved, the Father gave you to the Son. The Son went to the cross specifically for you because you are part of his sheep. And a few verses later, Jesus gives us more comfort in verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Think of that. Be comforted. Be encouraged. The Father chose you by name in eternity. The Father gave you by name, to the Son in eternity past to be one of his sheep. Christ went to the cross specifically for you because you are one of his sheep and because you are, by name, chosen as one of Christ's sheep. No one can snatch you out of Christ's hand.